MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 139 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, September 20th. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Today, we're going to cover the latest in filings and hearings down in Fulton County and a scathing ruling from Judge Middlebrooks against Trump trying to resurrect his previously dismissed and sanctioned lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and 31 other defendants based on, quote unquote, new evidence from the Durham report. <laughs> 31 other defendants. Do you know mm. any of them? <laughs> just a couple. Yeah, just a few. And uh, yeah, and and I promised on the other podcast I do, The Daily Beans, that we were going to go through that in detail because it, I have not read, I mean, I've read a few really great rulings from judges, but this one is, it's, we're going to go over it. You'll see. We also have new testimony from an FBI agent that pretty much destroys the House GOP's narrative in Shocker. the Hunter Biden case. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. And a Trump bar Office of Legal Counsel memo that's going to make impeachment of President Joe Biden really difficult for the House Republicans. And we also have a brief update on Pete Navarro and uh, Donald Trump in his E. Jean Carroll matters. But first, we need to thank our new patrons, patrons from Clean Up on Aisle 45. Thank you so much for your support. Supporting independent media uh, is so important, especially in these times of what is going on with the news right now, <laughs> what I'm watching. So thank you so much to Scott Shannon, Barbara Gibbs, Nathan Johns, Bridget Brown, Alex Sloan, Michelle Riddle, Please Gag the Mango Fascist, and John Karen. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. And uh, uh, we have a new episode of uh, the Jack podcast out, by the way. It's called Don't Call It a Gag Order. <laughs> So I I, uh, I encourage you to listen to that as well. Um, but that's a great name. Please gag the mango fascist. I agree. So if you want to become a patron, just head to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D. You'll get these episodes ad free and early. All right, let's start down in Fulton County because we have a lot to cover. I think we're going to have two whole segments uh, down in Fulton County, but maybe we can all maybe we can squeeze it all in into the A block. But let's start with Meadows. So here's the Here's the uh, chronology of events that happened mostly in the span of like three days this past week. First of all, Meadows asked the 11th Circuit for an emergency stay, right? Because he lost his bid to remove his Fulton County charges from state court in Georgia to federal court. So he asked Meadows for an emergency, or excuse me, Meadows asked the 11th Circuit for an emergency stay because he's like, hey, we still don't know whether we're all going to have to go to trial on October 23rd, we need to resolve my appeal on whether or not I can remove my case to federal court fast, right? And uh, the, so he asked for an emergency stay, actually both from the district court and the 11th Circuit. District court denied his emergency stay, but 11th Circuit granted it. And then the 11th Circuit set up, set up an expedited briefing schedule for a hearing for last Friday, um, and then Fonnie Willis filed her opposition to an emergency stay. Uh, and her argument was that former federal officers can't be removed to federal court. Court Only current federal officers can. And I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, I but agree. that was her argument. But then Judge McAfee had a hearing and ruled that Cheesebro and Powell will go in October, but the other 17 will not. So that sort of let Meadows off the hook. 
And um, in that ruling, the judge said that additional divisions of those 17 defendants may well be required, meaning if all 17, if no, nobody pleads out and we have to do all 17 at a later date, then none of them want a speedy trial. We might have to split them up into groups, basically. Um, the judge also said any other defendant who files for a speedy trial before October 23rd will immediately join Powell and Cheesebro. <laughs> yeah, and he put everybody, the, he, everybody looking Cheesebro, maybe people don't care, but anybody looking at Cindy Powell, I think that's extraordinary disincentive to ask for a speedy trial prior to October 23rd. So we'll wait until October 24th, right? Yeah, and Cheesebro wanted to sever from Powell, but the judge was like, no, you're nope. both going. And the deadline is October 23rd, meaning if you don't file by then, you don't get a speedy trial. You've waived your right. Um, so if you're going to get a speedy trial, you got to go with Powell and Cheesebro. Also, Thursday, McAfee presided over a 90-minute hearing to consider the defense's request to be able to interview grand jurors who handed up the 41-count indictment and to have access to transcripts of the testimony of the roughly 75 witnesses who testified before the special purpose grand jury. Um, he seemed keen on maybe allowing that to happen, but he hasn't ruled yet. He asked the defense attorneys to submit any proposed questions they plan to ask and provide him case law that permits such a line of inquiry, per permits them to speak to grand jurors. So he made that decision. Not all 19 are going to go together. Q Meadows withdrawing his motion for emergency stay with the 11th Circuit. So the 11th Circuit granted that motion to withdraw, um, but not his full appeal, just the request for the stay. And, and the 11th Circuit canceled that hearing to, to have, you know, that which, which was just about the stay, not about the merits. The appeal will go forward, but it's not expedited now because McAfee's ruling. You know, Meadows has time. He's no longer worried he'll be tried in October. So that appeal is still ongoing. We'll watch it. We'll cover it. But all that little brouhaha went down in the matter of about a day and a half. Yeah. And trying to keep track of all this is going to be fun. And again, you know, part of what we're going <laughs> to do every week is uh, walk through all the developments with you. But I think for, I agree with you that I think Meadows has a a decent argument to say look, this removal can't just be limited to current federal officers. Because if you think about it, I mean, I, you know, put the shoe on the other foot. Like, you know, I know that I think it was like, I forget who it was on the far right wing ecosphere talking about, you know, we're going to run around and find some local sheriff who's willing to bring charges against, you know, any of us who the deep staters back in the, you know, the first Trump administration bring them up on charges. There needs to, if you buy the argument that, former federal officers can't remove to federal court, particularly for actions they took in the context of the time they were federal officers, it, it starts to get, in my opinion, a little uh, problematic because you're going to have a massively chilling effect that who's going to want to go work in the federal government if you know 50 states out there can bring charges against whatever you may or may not have done as a federal official at any time into the future long after your federal service. So you know, we'll see what happens. I, I fully expect that you know, certainly if there's an adverse ruling to Meadows at the, uh, at the appellate level that that will get, um, they'll ask the Supreme Court uh, to, uh, to grant cert. I don't know whether or not that'll happen, but this is, you know, a long way of saying this is not at any means sort of the end of the road. I think there are a lot more sort of legal maneuvering things that are going to happen even, uh, you know, even within, you know, Meadows isn't on that October 23rd timetable for the speedy trial, but I would expect between Powell and Cheeseboro, there's going to be, you know, further maneuvering to try and slow that down. So we'll see. But yeah. again, October 23rd, we're just about a month away from that, right? <laughs> yeah, they had some, uh, uh, you know, jury selection stuff go through there too. Like you're going to write your questions for voir dire. And, you know, the judge was like, keep in mind that we have to have jury selection done by like November 5th, I think he said. Or that's when it starts. I think that's when it has to be done um, in order to get the, spe the speedy trial, right? You, so it's, it can't take eight months like the YSL case. You, so when, you, you know, when you're fashioning your voir dire questions, think about the time limits. Maybe I'll give a certain amount of time to each panel, and then that's all the time you get. You can allocate it how you want. Um, and then there was a little back and forth on that, but I, you know, he's like, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But, you know, as far as the argument for removal, I think that the, the Fonnie Willis should just stick with the fact that well, you know, the, what the district court ruled, like what Judge Jones said, he's like, look, none of this was part of your job. And you were violating the Hatch Act. It was political in nature. And none of that is grounds for removal to federal court. That, you know, so that's, I, you know, that's the argument I would stick with. But we also had some uh, Trump filings. 
Oh, yes, we did. So he filed a waiver for a speedy trial in exchange for his severance motion and filed a motion to adopt Cheesebro's motion to dismiss charges, arguing that the U.S. Constitution's Supremacy Clause barred states from prosecuting or otherwise regulating conduct, quote, that was entirely within the ambit of federal authority, unquote. So, you know, there, the immediate question there, anybody, you know, sort of doing an analysis of the activity is, was, was his stealing a vote in an insurrection part of legitimate federal authority? And I think that'll be the, the key argument that you see coming out of Fulton County, that it does, that may well be true, but this in no way was, you know, in the ambit of his federal authority, let alone entirely within it. So, I expect the the argument that we'll see back will uh, we'll, we'll push back on that. Now, attorneys for Trump took a similar approach uh, this last Monday in adopting an earlier motion filed by Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani that would affect seven of the counts against Trump. So, I, th- I think for Trump, we'll see a continued attempt to just file any number of motions that, it, whether regardless of their merit, are designed to take up time and eat up time and push things down the line. And so for this, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the things he was doing or is alleged to have done are not at all legitimate presidential federal executive actions. But nevertheless, it's not a, a wholly entirely frivolous filing. It will chew up a lot of time in terms of you know, the court looking to see what Fulton County prosecutors have to say in response to formulate their order and opinion and to file that. So not not surprising. I, I think this is going to be a huge, by the time this is all said and done, I mean, it's already got to be a massive, you know, sort of production line of Trump attorneys just churning out motion after motion just designed to slow everything down. But this is this is no different. I don't know that it'll get very far, uh, but we'll, we'll see fairly quickly. And again, you know, how they take, um, you know, the balance of these defendants. And we'll talk just in a little bit about all the other different little groups that are sort of arguing they should be considered separately from the rest. But this is part of that maneuvering to try and figure out how, again, in Trump's case, best to slow everything down. Right. And he's sort of adopting everyone else's filings like, uh, oh, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. That's what I mean. Right. And and that just adds it. And uh, again, and then he'll file separately. Like, it's just going to be a uh, a flurry of filings, I think. Um, and those other little groups, uh, Ray Smith, uh, one of the defendants, filed a motion to divide the defendants into manageable groups, which which I think the judge, Judge McAfee, was indicating that he might be wanting to do that. But he's asked for arguments. Um, Harrison Floyd only wants to be tried alongside Trevion Cootie and Stephen Lee. Those are the three that were responsible for uh, intimidating Ruby Freeman. They're a little conspiracy. So it doesn't seem like any of these folks know how RICO works. Like, you are responsible for everyone else's shit. Um, and they only want to be responsible, you know, or tried in their own little conspiracy group. Like, no, I'm in this particular spoke of the hub-and-spoke conspiracy, and I only want to be tried with other cohorts in my spoke. And it's like, nope. That's not exactly how it works. Um, now, for, you know, that doesn't mean that if, like, the judge divides these groups up, that he won't maybe take that into consideration so that the evidence is similar in each of those cases. It might make for a shorter trial, maybe, but it's not for any other reason uh, than that maybe kind of consideration. And then Scott Hall, he doesn't want to be tried with anyone who has charges for activities outside of Coffee County. So he participated in the voting machine breach, right? Um, and he's like, well, I should only have to be tried with with people who did bad stuff in the same county I live in. So I don't think that that's going to fly either because, again, that's not how RICO works. What's funny, though, Pete, is in the script here, I misspelled breach. I, spe- <laughs> I spelled it with two E's, and that's pants. And I wanted to bring that breaches are like I, the pants. I wanted to bring that up because there's an update on Jeffrey Clark. That's not in the script. <laughs> and you know, uh, that's my pants to Jeffrey Clark segue uh, for the day. As you know, he was pulled out of his house and he had to stand in his driveway in his underwear while they seized his electronic devices. Um, and as an AAG had no idea that there were electronic sniffing dogs, which I thought was funny because... Best, by the way, on that note, the best the electronic sniffing dog's name, by the way, Browser, which I think oh. is a spectacular, right? Great name. That is all electronics. You're not going to beat that. No, no, I don't think you're going to beat that. But here's here's what's extra funny about uh, about Jeff Clark not knowing what the fuck goes on in the rest of the Department of Justice, because 
Former Attorney General, and I put Attorney General in quotes, Edwin Meese uh, has has written a, <laughs> has written a letter, a declaration in support of Jeffrey Clark. Of course he did. Uh, he he was uh, Ronald Reagan's Attorney General. He was involved in the scandalous Bechtel Iranian pipeline bribes. He was involved in covering up Iran Contra. He was involved in the WedTech uh, contract scheme. Uh, he you know he had an independent counsel investigating him. He resigned in 88 uh, without being charged, uh, but the, he was probably one of the more corrupt attorneys general we've had. Dude's 91, wrote a letter saying Jeff Clark's awesome, even if he doesn't wear pants. Um, his argument is that Jeff Clark, who's having a hearing right now as we record this, to have his case removed to federal court. But Edwin Meese argued that, um, well, the the thing about the uh, assistant attorneys general is that they aren't relegated to any one specific division and they aren't relegated to any one specific set of duties in the department of justice. So like I was thinking about, you know, call us when there's an oil spill, you know, Jeffrey Clark actually can do the jobs of other people or other divisions within the department of justice but the fact that he doesn't know what a browser, what a what a, what a browser is, what a, <laughs> what an electronic sniffing dog is, is like, well, probably maybe he can't do those jobs. But the the point was uh, that he, you know, once asked to write any opinion, you are obliged to. If the president asks you to write something up, you have to. If you are an executive uh, branch uh, employee, and he did, which first of all would indicate that Trump directed him to write that letter to Georgia, which would be interesting in and of itself. But, you know, he fails to recognize that that letter, I mean, sure, you can be dual hatted or multiple, have, wear multiple hats, do have multiple duties, do jobs in multiple divisions of, of the Department of Justice. But none of the divisions of the Department of Justice jobs include overthrowing the government or violating the Hatch Act. So I, I don't know that this argument's going to fly, but Jeffrey Clark did not show up to his hearing today. He's relying on Mises' letter, I guess. Um, so that'll be interesting, and we'll report it as soon as it comes out. What are what do you did you read the Meese thing? It was, yeah, I, 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 I've read the stories about. It. I mean, look, anytime you're relying on Ed Meese to be the person who's <laughs> arguing in your corner, I mean, what the fuck? You're going to go to Denny Hastert next and Rod Bulgojevich and ask them to like you know pick up the finer points of obscure law to try and argue that you know you're you had some ability or a requirement to do this as a DOJ officer. I I, I think it's not. It it doesn't. Again, to the point of, well, if this was one thing, if he said, hey, environmental law attorney, please write an analysis of the use of military force in Yemen, I, he he might have no expertise in that and might be obliged on this argument to do it. But I think you're absolutely right. It isn't, you know, go give me options and opinions on conducting an insurrection, on preventing the lawful transfer of power, on obstructing the implementation of, uh, you know, the the certification of the electoral college votes. This isn't, there's not some allowance for, you know, I want you to write a letter about how I can, you know, go on a serial murder spree, uh, you know, from all these Mexicans illegally crossing uh, the border down in Texas. It, that, you, there, there's not some ability to I think take that and make you know an illegal ask, an illegal request. No. Write me lawful. a letter and put a bunch of lies in yeah, it. Yeah, and, and again, it just goes you know what this argument. It's like okay, well, let's you know take a look at the oath of office and the Constitution and whether or not any of these things are you know consistent with that. So again, it's not just I think that the the opinion is flawed, but the choice of the messenger is like come on, Ed Meese, I you know what. Line it up. I mean, Ken Starr, I'm certain, has something to say. But I, you know, for those folks, you know, who don't remember Ed Meese, I mean, up and until Bill Barr, he was, you know, certainly in the running for one of the worst, most abusive attorney generals in our nation's history. And you know, thanks to Billy, where, you know, that that bar has been substantially lowered, I guess, raised, whatever, it moved far more to the extreme. Let's say it that way. But I, I would not, if I could possibly avoid it, I would not rely on Ed Meese to to write anything on my behalf. Yeah, I did a big uh, report on it in this just this past Monday's episode of The Daily Beans, and I put a thread out on on Twitter, and the number one response by far is, he's still alive? That was the number one <laughs> response that I got. And then the number two response is everybody sharing me uh, sh uh, photos of them wearing their Meese is a Pig shirts. That was a thing <laughs> uh, back in the 80s. So, uh, yeah, resigned in disgrace, but he is 
He is uh, Jeffrey Clark's last hope. You are our last hope. Um, I don't know that it's going to go very well. But again, we'll report on what happens in the Jeff Clark hearing. There's a lot of great reporters down on the ground. Katie Fang, Hugo Lull, Tomer uh, Hollerman. Um, or Yeah. And uh, who else? Professor Anna Price. Anna Brower is, uh, Bauer is incredible. Bauer, right. And um, there's just so many great reporters for you to follow for that information. Of course, this is federal. This is a federal hearing, so there's we don't get to watch it on TV. So, um, but they'll have the news as soon as it pops out, and we'll talk about it on the weekend's bonus episode for patrons. But we have to take a quick break right now. We have a lot more to get to. I'm surprised we got through the Fulton County thing in, in one one block. Good for us. Um, but we have we have a lot more interesting stuff to get to. So stick around. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. More patrons to thank, including Julie, Jason Delecto. Not funny, Dana. I got a job, so you get a patron. Took me six months to get a bookkeeping job. I don't trust this great unemployment. And it was cut off, so if there's an additional set of words after that, uh, apologize for the character limit. Deidre Kleckner, Kaylee Vandertulip, Susan Johnson, Sharon Henry, and Dr. M. Thank all of you so much. You are truly, truly the folks that make this go. You make this possible. Certainly everything from the regular podcasts and the things we put into it to the bonus episodes and everything else. Couldn't do it without you and extraordinarily thankful for your support. So thank each and every one of you. Yeah. And your names are associated with my favorite part of today's show. <laughs> That's absolutely. The Middlebrooks bench slap that, yes and i you know again as uh as as allison indicated uh of that former lawsuit that not only am i familiar with people uh as defendants in that but was one in fact myself it gives me great pleasure to relay to you that judge middlebrooks <laughs> dismissed the second attempt at trump's uh hillary Biden clinton lawsuit based on the durham findings now uh, back on May 12th of this year in 2023, this is from the Middlebrooks, and it's extraordinary. I mean, we'll read um, some of it here during the podcast, but it's really interesting reading, one, because it just thoroughly thrashes Trump's legal efforts, but it's written in a very almost conversational tone. I mean, there's sometimes you'll read judicial opinions and they're very formal or stilted. This is like you talking to me on an email using contractions and a very sort of informal tone, but it blasts. Uh, Trump's failed effort now. Uh, and so let's, you know, without wasting any time, let's get to it. So this is, again, from Middlebrook's uh, 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 filing. Yeah, and I only picked like the little, like the my favorite, favorite part, the whole thing. It's I mean, all it good, is, right. It is 20 pages of just like a flamethrower. And and so I really recommend you <laughs> you read it. And you're just going to hear like very small excerpts. But, you know, what I... What, you know, Pete and I went over this and these are our favorite parts. So enjoy. Yeah. And when you hear me, like when you hear me using contractions or sort of like talking in form, that's not, that's not me summarizing it. This is the way it's written. So again, go, you know, after you listen to this, feel free to pull it up and read it because it is, you know, just 20 very uh, satisfying uh, pages of judicial findings. So on May 12th, 2023, Special Counsel John H. Durham submitted his report on matters related to intelligence activities and investigations arising out of the 2016 presidential campaigns, the quote-unquote Durham report. Plaintiff and his lawyers tout the report as, quote, newly discovered evidence, unquote, and they now ask me to reconsider my previous rulings. But far from, quote, seismically altering the legal landscape of this case, unquote, the Durham report changes nothing. Nor could it, really. Even if the Durham report uncovered the sort of vast conspiracy alleged by plaintiff, it plainly did not, it would not change the many legal conclusions I made in the order dismissing plaintiff's lawsuit. And whatever the Durham report can be said to have uncovered, for purposes of this case, it does not change my findings that movements acted in bad faith in bringing this lawsuit and that this case exemplifies Mr. Trump's history of abusing the judicial process. Therefore, for the reasons set forth below, plaintiff and his lawyer's motion for indicative ruling based upon new evidence is denied. <laughs> okay, so that, that that's how it kicks off. But wait, it just <laughs> it continues. The Durham report is not, quote, newly discovered evidence, unquote because a party cannot discover something that did not exist at the time of the trial or here, the final orders. To the extent that plaintiff can pluck out arguably favorable sounding facts from the report that may have some conceivable tie into his conclusory allegations, 
that doesn't affect the many legal conclusions set forth in the motion to dismiss order. I highlight some here. Now, I'm, this is Pete talking, not the order. There, there are 15, but here are just some highlights of them. Plaintiff's amended complaint is a quintessential shotgun pleading. And, quote, courts in the 11th Circuit have little tolerance for shotgun pleadings, unquote. Plaintiff's allegations compel only one logical conclusion, that plaintiff was aware of the factual basis underlying his RICO claim since at least October 2017, if not earlier, thus placing his RICO claims outside of the four-year statute of limitations. Obstruction of justice does not supply plaintiff with a valid predicate act because plaintiff does not identify any official proceedings that defendants allegedly obstructed. <laughs> Even accepting plaintiff's allegations is true, Perjury and falsifying documents are not RICO predicate acts. Even if DNS data is a trade secret, plaintiff has not plausibly alleged that he has a protectable interest in it. DNS data is public. <laughs> Nor does quote-unquote misreporting payments to Fusion GPS and campaign finance reports qualify as wire fraud. Violations of federal campaign finance laws are not RICO predicate offenses. <laughs> I, <can't>. wow. I struggle <laughs> I struggle to even imagine anything that the Durham report could say to warrant a change in any of those conclusions, the sum of which foreclosed plaintiff's claims and led to sanctions. Yeah. Like the judge says, besides, you didn't file an amended complaint pointing out anything specific in the Durham report that matters, right? Now I'm paraphrasing here what the judge says. He's like, and you you there was no second amended complaint. You didn't point me to any specific evidence that precludes any of those legal problems I found out, let alone any new evidence at all. And it's not the court's job to do that for you. And he actually says the words, this is just one big smokescreen. So, uh, you know, and again, I, those were only six of 15 legal problems. The, the, ma the main one is you are way outside of the statute of limitations, my friend, and everything else is just cake. Yeah, and some of this, and for those of you who aren't attorneys or aren't familiar with the phrase shotgun uh, pleading, a shotgun it, it, it takes its word from the, the a shotgun, the weapon, where you can just point something in a general direction and shoot out you know, a bunch of shot, and it spreads out so widely that wherever it's generally pointing that one or two pellets are going to hit something, and that's used as an analogy for filing that where you, know, you, you just throw out a whole mass of allegations against a whole bunch of targets, not specifying with any precision who those allegations are targeted against. And so particularly courts look unfavorably upon it because one, it is difficult for a court, it is difficult for a defendant to say, okay, well, you're making all of these allegations against all of these things. You need to specify with some particularity, what are you what are you accusing me specifically of so that I can come up with a defense? And a court has to wade through it saying, okay, when you have all these allegations, you have all these alleged defendants, they don't line up. And in particular, like the 11th Circuit, where this is, where Middlebrooks is, is under the entire Florida and most of the, all of the Southeast is the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit of all the appellate courts in the United States has a really strong history of developing um, case law really against shotgun pleading. So if you're going to bring a shotgun pleading, I mean, no court looks on it favorably, but any court in the 11th Circuit in particular is the worst, most horrible place to bring any sort of shotgun litigation, which is exactly what this BS was and I can you know regale everybody with you know when they finally found me and served the the lawsuit it's like literally an inch and a half thick of just <laughs> rambling nonsense of which Judge Middlebrooks won't characterize here for us all in a second <laughs> he he continues again this well, is well you know I wanted to also bring up just one quick point before you go on because I this next part I specifically was hoping that you would read because it has to do with the Mueller investigation Trump filed it here because he was hoping to get Judge Aileen Cannon. And Middlebrooks has, on, you know, on multiple occasions, accused him of judge shopping. But he ended up with Judge Middlebrooks, which is the like the one judge down in, you know, down in that area that he did not want to get. So you're, you know, once you get that judge, you're stuck with that judge. But this was he specifically wanted this shotgun pleading to go to Eileen Cannon, which I have to say, because of the 11th Circuit and their hatred for shotgun pleadings, would not have gone well for her if she ruled in his favor or allowed this lawsuit to continue. 
Right. And and some of it also, you know, he, he certainly wanted canon. And some of this too is like, I mean, he was very just extraordinarily, not only did he try judge, shopping around for venue, he then was extraordinarily antagonistic towards the judge. And so over the course of the litigation and his constant, you know, harping and pleadings, his, his public statements, I mean, he did nothing to, a judge is going to, hopefully, whatever a judge's sort of political leanings one way or the other, that they're going to approach a case with a certain amount of objectivity and want to just do their professional job. But Trump was so, as we've seen elsewhere, so antagonistic over such a long period of time. He, he certainly generated, uh, you know, no goodwill in his behavior and his attorney's behavior in court. And it, you know, it shows that Middlebrooks is like, look, is again, a quote, I imposed nearly $1 million in sanctions on movements for filing and doubling down on a shotgun pleading that functioned as an abusive litigation tactic and was designed to further a political narrative. I called movements out for consistently misrepresenting and cherry-picking portions of public reports and filings to support a false factual narrative. To name only a few, movements misrepresented the findings of the special counsel Robert Mueller's report, alleging inter alia that it quote-unquote exonerated him. Yet in referring to obstruction of justice, the Mueller report said, quote, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him, unquote. Similarly, movements relied heavily on the DOJ inspector general's report into the Crossfire Hurricane investigation without acknowledging its conclusion that the FBI opened the investigation, quote, for an authorized purpose and, quote, with adequate factual predication, unquote, that had nothing to do with the defendants or the Steele dossier. And in alleging that plaintiff was, quote, banned from different social media platforms, including Twitter, unquote, as a result of, quote, the misinformation campaign waged by Hillary Clinton, unquote, movements at best made it up, and at worst, flatly lied. He was banned from Twitter for inciting violence on January 6th. Setting aside movements, factual misrepresentations, and exaggerations, I also found that movements put forth frivolous legal theories foreclosed by existing precedent. Lastly, I found that this case is part of Mr. Trump's pattern of misusing the courts to serve a political purpose. The telltale signs being, and the judge bullets these out, right? I mean, you can sit there and there's like bullet, bullet, bullet. The telltale signs being provocation and boastful rhetoric a political narrative carried over from rallies, attacks on political opponents and the news media, disregard for legal principles and precedent, and fundraising and payments to lawyers from political action committees. Movements pursued this lawsuit in bad faith for the improper purpose of dishonestly advancing a political narrative. As I previously explained, Mr. Trump is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. This case is straight out of that playbook. Nothing in the Durham report changes that. And consequently, he denies the motion. But I, again, this isn't, this isn't the government or a defendant's attorney pleading this. This is the judge right. saying this, writing this into his order, writing this into the record. And what's stunning is like if you if you look, good old Alina Haba, who's on the hook along with Trump for that nearly million dollars in sanctions, isn't isn't on this uh, isn't on this pleading, but some new schmuck in her in her uh, law firm is. So we'll we'll see if any of these defendants seek or can seek uh, further sanctions for um, for this continuing litigation. But I you know yeah, it, you got to spread the sanctions bills around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I imagine Alina Habo was like, no, I'm not putting my name on that shit. Sorry, bro. I already owe a million dollars. Find and somebody again, else. The thing is that that million dollars is not, there is not going to be a penny out of Trump's pocket. I doubt there's going to be a penny out of Alina Habba's pocket. And you know who's got a pocket it's coming out of? Each and every MAGA donor from Birmingham, yep. Alabama to Savannah, Georgia, to Tallahassee, Florida, to Cleveland, Ohio, whoever is scraping together their five bucks because they see some ad on Truth Social and say, yeah, I want to support Donald Trump. No, what you're going to support in part is this frivolous, abusive, sanctioned conduct that is so bad that you have just, I mean, I, I haven't read, there's just an absolutely scathing finding all being financed on the backs of people who can least afford to be doing it. And it's just, 
the, the, the level of the pervasive grift that goes into this ecosystem, whether it is personal enrichment, whether it is frivolous litigation, whether it is performance art in our court system, is just appalling to watch. And I just hope someday people, regardless of who they are, will you know be able to see just how abusive it is. Not only the people it's targeting, but the people who unwittingly are supporting it. It's just appalling. And, you know, thank goodness for, you know, Judge Middlebrook's not having any of it. So that's done. You know, we'll, we'll see what Trump comes up with next. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm waiting for the sanctions motions. Um, and uh, I, I expect they'll come. I mean, why wouldn't you? They, he's already awarded over a million dollars in sanctions and attorney's fees. Um, so why not? Yeah. And the other, you know, one last note, you know, I was a little bit frustrated because all of us, the, the people who were federal employees, like, so me, director Comey, Andy McCabe and others, um, were removed under the Westfall act by the government. And what that means, essentially the Westfall act says, if there were things that, you know, depending on this type of lawsuit, if it alleges acts that were done by you as a federal employee, the U S government will substitute itself. So although I was, and all those other folks were named as defendants initially, because it was in the context of things we were doing as government employees, the government said, okay, no, you're no longer suing, you know, Pete and Andy and Comey and everybody else. You're now the U S government is in there for them. What was frustrating to me after that first finding is I, I wrote the folks at DOJ who had, you know, substituted in and saying, hey, look, you know, are you going to seek sanctions? Because, again, at the end of the day, I, right. I, I'm, I'm not a party, right? Bills. But the thing is, they still, the government still has to defend all of us on behalf of the government. There are still multiple attorneys within the Department of Justice who have to draft filings and attend arguments and plead. Guess what? All of which are being paid for by the U.S. taxpayer. So my argument was like, mm-hmm. look, I'm not, you know, this isn't me, but as a taxpayer who's paying for you to do this, as a taxpayer who wants to discourage future frivolous uh, litigation, why don't you also seek sanctions, you know, to recoup the money that they, and they're like, well, you know, we don't, we don't tend to do that, you know, yeah, in the typical thing, right? We've never done it in the past because we've never had to do it in the past because we've never had a president like Donald Trump. But suffice it to say, you, all of you listeners, all of your working families who pay taxes paid for the Department of Justice attorneys who are participating in this lawsuit. So you're also victims of this nonsense behavior. So, yep. I, you know, again, do I wish DOJ would have joined in that? Yes. Did they? know? Do I? I mean, I, I, what can I think you do? it's... I, yeah, I don't think it's a valid argument, but I do understand why perhaps they made that argument. But uh, anyway, it, it so again, this... Just the, the, the final counterpoint for me, at least, is that this isn't the victims aren't just the Trump donors. The victims are all of us, every single taxpayer yeah. who, you know, ties up the court system. And the same deal, you know, Judge Middlebrooks, who pays for his salary, who pays for the courts, you and I do. So all of this, all of this is an abuse by Donald Trump that that impacts us all. Yeah. And I'm I'm just kind of hoping that maybe some asset forfeiture upon conviction might help make up for that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, the things I'm waiting, A, E. Jean Carroll, I, I, I'm eagerly, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. And two, you know, this isn't so much Trump as Rudy Giuliani, um, Ruby Fearman and Shea Moss, I, I look forward to uh, the damages phase of, of both of those uh, trials. So hopefully yeah. there's some justice coming. It, it will be Same. the, it'll be the, 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 the personal equivalent of hopefully the Dominion lawsuit settlement and, you know, Smartmatic coming down the pike. That'd be nice. That'd be really nice. Um, I don't know if they, I, I mean that I don't know if that Rudy Giuliani has that much money, but you know, we'll see. Uh, all right, everybody, we have to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about that. But before uh, before we talk about um, E. Jean Carroll and Pete Navarro, we're going to talk about uh, a fellow named uh, Sobosinski from the FBI and uh, what that what his testimony, uh, how that kind of fits into what House Republicans are trying to do, not only just in the Hunter Biden, you know, the hearings and the IRS uh, tax whistleblowers, et cetera, but in the larger uh, function of impeachment now that they've opened an inquiry. But we have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Uh, We have more patrons to thank. Thank you so much. Debbie, Mark Pengriffin, Scott L., Shalabar, Melinda Griffith, Alan Watts, J.H. Latimer, and Graham Dixon. 
You make this show possible. Thank you so much, everybody. If you want to become a patron, you can do it by going to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's aisle four five pod um, Thank you for supporting independent journalism. It's so critical right now in this environment. All right, let's talk about this FBI agent. Um, his name is Sabasinski. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I haven't, I mean, I've heard it pronounced a few different ways. Yeah, I think it's Sobosinski. Uh, Sobosinski, okay. Well, he he testified, uh, I think, before Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee behind closed doors. And that transcript of that testimony just blows holes wide, big giant holes into the House Republicans' questions about David Weiss. Now, I mean, if you remember, Barr appointed David Weiss like five years ago to investigate Hunter Biden. Uh, which in my mind was like a Durham thing or or when Trump, um, you know, did the shakedown of Zelensky to get them to investigate Hunter and Joe Biden. He found somebody that would investigate Hunter Biden here at home and, set, you know, set the dogs on him. Uh, Republicans pointed to allegations by two IRS whistleblowers that the Justice Department stymied aspects of the Hunter Biden probe. Member Shapley and Ziegler, just two IRS agents uh, testifying in that hearing. We covered it when it happened, you know, and they were saying, I was in an October 7th meeting with David Weiss where he said he didn't have any, he couldn't bring charges. He wasn't the decider or, you know, uh, and that he tried to bring charges and they told him no, or, you know, he asked to be a special counsel. They told him no, they being Maine Justice, Merrick Garland and and uh, the Department of Justice. But Sobosinski, uh, he, uh, he testified, and this interview transcript was obtained by the Washington Post, and, and his testimony pushed back on some of those claims, specifically that Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, was, had, he told investigators he did not have authority to bring certain criminal charges against the president's son. Key parts of Sobosinski's interview with lawmakers focused on that October 7th meeting, that was 2022, with Gary Shapley. He was in there, Shapley, Shapley. Um, and he had earlier described that to lawmakers in that hearing, which, by the way, um, breaking news, uh, Hunter Biden has sued the IRS yep. for those two whistleblowers revealing his private tax information in those public hearings. Now, Shapley uh, said David Weiss told FBI and IRS agents during that meeting that Weiss was not the deciding official on whether charges are filed. But Sabasinski, who was also there, said he didn't hear Weiss say that and never felt that Weiss needed approval to bring charges. Uh, noted there was a bureaucratic administrative process that Weiss had to work through. This is what Sobosinski said. There is a process that Weiss had to work through to bring charges outside Delaware. But his understanding was that Weiss had the authority to bring whatever he needed to do. Quote, I never thought that anybody was there above David Weiss to say no. And he said, I went into that meeting believing he had the authority, and I left that meeting believing he had the authority to bring charges. Now, Sobosinski said he had no awareness of several other claims Shapley made about the October 7th meeting, including that Weiss informed the group that U.S. Attorney for D.C., Matthew Graves, would not allow Weiss to charge Hunter Biden with tax violations in D.C. Sobosinski also said he did not take any notes during that meeting, but Shapley did, and the Republicans released those notes to try to, as some sort of a gotcha, but I've seen those notes, Pete, and they corroborate what Savasinski testified to. They say in there, you know, Weiss says, um, we're not going to bring, he said, first of all, he says, Weiss says he's not the deciding person. And then there's a redaction bar that probably says the U.S. attorneys are. Um, or there's a process. But there, there also is a note that says follow the process, uh, which is what Savasinski is saying, that there is a process for David Weiss to bring charges outside of where he is, which is Delaware. Um, and so, and they even list the California U.S. attorney who would probably bring the tax charges in California. He is, he decides, right? Uh, and then that's sort of the process that has to be followed. And that's what Weiss was talking about in the meeting. And that's what Sobosinski testified to. But there's a lot of redactions in these notes that probably explain all that. Um, but as far as I can tell, and you know, they even, he even wrote Pete, he's like, Weiss says he's not the decider, uh, redacting, redacting. And then it says, 
Weiss says there will be no charges for the 2014 and 2015 tax years. And I'm like, well, if he's not the decider, how did he decide that he's not going to bring charges for 2014 to 2015 tax years? I mean, beyond the fact, beside the fact it's beyond the statute of limitations. That sounds like a decision uh, to me. So these notes are contradictory. They're half redacted. But anyway, that's what is going on with this uh, Sabasinski uh, testimony. And of course, we aren't really hearing about it because people who tell the truth don't make as much noise as Jim Jordan, I guess. Right. And I mean, it's so blatantly one-sided in terms of what Jim Jordan's putting forward, either the things they're releasing or the witnesses that they're bringing in when something comes up. And again, you know, Sobosinski is a you know, fairly senior FBI official. And what he has to say, one, is consistent with what Weiss has said, and two, is very much consistent with sort of what you would expect to see and the process that you would, you know, kind of want to see unfolding, you know. There is an administrative process and, you know, that on the one hand, so saying, yeah, there's a bureaucratic administrative process. On the other hand, Chapley's notes are saying, follow the process. So, and that's what everybody should want. There is a process in place, follow the process. And, you know, so did say, look, he was frustrated at the speed with which Weiss was or what was not making charging decisions. But again, that in my experience, that's very common. I mean, I think agents frequently, I know I was frustrated all the time at DOJ's speed or lack of speed and making a decision and wanting to wait and not wanting to say one way or the other. I mean, this is just a constant. Anybody who has been an agent for any amount of time is going to have experienced frustrations with prosecutors and they're wanting to take their time deciding. And it's just a very different sort of decision-making process. So again, when I, when I see the, the things that have been released about Sobosinski's testimony, it strikes me as like, oh, this is completely normal. It strikes me as absolutely uh, legitimate, consistent with my experience, credible. And I think to the extent that, you know, the problem is that, you know, Shapley's notes, you're saying, well, you know, there's a disagreement. And, you know, Shapley's attorneys and others are saying, well, you know, he, he took contemporaneous notes and so they should be trusted more. It's like, well, except, you know, as you pointed out, when you actually read the notes, they're largely yeah. consistent with what Sobosinski has to say. It's, it's Shapley's sort of extemporaneous comments and testimony that is the you know the the some of the most very significant outlying stuff that's in disagreement. So that a lot of those things aren't even in his notes. So yeah, David Weiss himself has written two letters saying I had authority the whole time, y'all. And it's not it's not any again. You think about a meeting that occurred years ago where there were 10, 15 people there of different levels, from you know ground level investigating agents to senior managers. Every single person coming out of there is going to have a slightly different recollection of what went on. But the point is, there's not going to be some, whether or not you took contemporaneous notes, there is not going to be some bombshell statement about, hey, look, I'm not the guy who makes these decisions. If that was said or not said, people are going to remember that. Somebody like Sobosinski is going to remember that. And so I, I just, and the, the, the flip side of that, that, you know, Shapley and and the uh, the other whistleblower were you know standing alone and you had this huge cabal of other people who were working to you know deny justice. It it just it, it's not possible. It, it can't. It doesn't. The government doesn't work that way. Right for not paying taxes for two years that were eventually paid. Right. Like let's let's talk about that. Let's not talk like uh, you know maybe you if you're trying to hide shit because perhaps your organization has been increasing uh you know fraudulently increasing asset valuations to to fraudulently obtain bank loans okay if we're talking in the millions and billions of dollars but not paying a hundred grand on a tax bill four years ago and then paying it back there you think there's going to be this much of a deep state cover-up it's like it's just the dumbest it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And I am very, you know, you're right. Just before we came on air here, there there was a, uh, a lawsuit filed looking at alleging that the IRS didn't follow the procedures and releasing some of this information. And, you know, there is some defense about, oh, this is in front of Congress and they're whistleblowers, but there's still limits, right? I mean, you can't, invoking whistleblower protections doesn't allow you to go in there and, you know, necessarily disclose a, a massive re amount of um, taxpayer information. Now, you know, where that line specifically falls, I don't know. But again, keep in mind, there's a difference here. One, filing that lawsuit, don't think of like, well, the ultimate decision or the ultimate sort of um, gauge as to whether or not this is successful is whether or not the lawsuit, they find them guilty or not guilty. The first step is, does it survive a motion to dismiss? In other words, like, you know, presumably the government will say, hey, this is our, and the defendants, this is a you know, this, this lawsuit is frivolous. It should be thrown out. 
But if it survives a motion to dismiss, then you get into discovery. And there are a lot of things out there, rumblings about stuff that Shapley wrote down, that there were people, you know, in looking and asking for records, that he didn't turn over material that he had allegedly for months and months and months until he was finally made to do it. There are these rumblings that there is potentially improper activity or behavior that is sitting there in the background. And if this lawsuit makes it past the motion to dismiss, if this lawsuit gets to the point where Hunter Biden and you know Abby Laurel or whoever it is who filed the lawsuit gets to start asking the IRS for discovery and starts getting to this, I'm very interested to see what material is in there. One, because it, you know, some of this, I think for anybody who's a taxpayer wants to have some reassurance that all our tax information is not going to be thrown in front of a purely partisan committee that, you know, Jim Jordan and James Comer clearly are, but two, to the, the, how that might impact the existing criminal charges or potential future criminal charges against Hunter Biden. If you start finding material that has any sort of, um, sort of adverse information about the conduct of the investigation or the behavior of the investigators. So there's, you know, potential can of worms here. That's exactly what I was thinking, because, I, you know, they're going to have a selective prosecution argument in the criminal charges. And, and they already do. And I expect tax charges possibly to be brought, um, probably not in D.C., but in California. So, I mean, yeah, that would be <laughs> that would really lend itself to bolster a selective prosecution argument, wouldn't it? Right, for sure. And, you know, there are concerns, too, about like some of this, you know, they claim to be whistleblowers, but there was also a great deal of concern about information that was leaking about these investigations and questions and inquiries about who was leaking the information and who was talking to who. And again, there, there's nothing that I've seen that's very, very specific, but there was at least some indication in some quarters that prosecutors and potentially others in the, you know, in, in the in the federal government had some concerns about whether or not anybody in the IRS or anywhere, frankly, within the government was leaking information illegally uh, to members of the media. So to the extent things were going on there, again, all of this goes to if you're going to try and bring a criminal trial, you've got to have as the government, you've got to have witnesses who are going to introduce evidence, who are going to provide testimony. And if those people have or can be shown to have concerns about their credibility, concerns about their behavior, concerns about whether or not they're engaging in you know, either unlawful or, or other activity that was certainly against regulation, that is going to make a very challenging case for the government. So we'll see where this leads. But I think it is, you know, as we talked about before on the podcast, the, the Abby Lowell is, you know, Hunter Biden's turned a little bit of a corner here. It was like, you know, a lot of, you know, cooperate and graduate, just plead out, get or, you know, agree to something where there's no jail time. And there, there has been a very marked change in sort of strategy, it appears, where he's becoming very, uh, a lot more aggressive. Going on offense. Right. And we'll see. And I think there's, frankly, I, I think that any time, I mean, governments are imperfect, right? I mean, you and I both know that. There are, there are th- mistakes that are made. There are people who sure. you know, goof up. There are people who act not out of pure motives. There is inevitably material there. And I think what we're seeing Hunter Biden and Abby Lowen and others doing are saying, hey, all right, well, then let's, let's, let's fight a little bit. And not to yeah. say he doesn't eventually plead out, but let's you know, let's let's get this past motion to dismiss and let's start taking some discovery and let's see how that all plays out. Well, he may. And and also in discovery, we could find out who directed these things. I mean, you know, we, we had the that really invasive uh, IRS audits performed on Andy McCabe and and Jim Comey. Um, and they were They looked into that and they had sort of kind of half heartedly determined that, oh, no, it was totes, totes random. There may have been some problems with the randomization process. Um, but, you know, this is another way to look a little bit deeper. And by the way, selective prosecution, I'm sure most uh, people listening know what that means. But basically, he wouldn't have been brought up on charges or even maybe even investigated if his name were not Hunter Biden. Um, you know, I talked a little bit uh, about how many of those, you know, with the gun charge that he's been indicted on. I talked a little bit on Monday's Daily Beans about the fact Washington Post did some da- data digging and of the 27 million background checks run on gun purchases, there were 238 referred um, for for file, you know, for lying on this form. And in, in Delaware, there were three, and zero of them were brought up on charges. And you know, most of the, in fact, every single former federal prosecutor I've spoken to said they've never seen this charge as a standalone charge. It's usually like if it's an armed robbery or something, and then it's like an additional charge. Um, yeah. 
And, and somebody had a great idea, I forget who it was on Twitter, saying, you know what the Democrats need to do? They need to introduce an yeah. act called the, the Hunter Biden Act, which would require a mandatory check for anybody who's buying a gun to check against whether or not there'd been any gun charges. Now, Republicans are never, ever, ever, ever going to vote for that, but make them vote against it. And and yeah. just like, you know, do the, the, the sheer hypocrisy, like, okay, great. You want to prosecute stuff like this? Let's Let's actually formalize it. Let's make a law that we are going to check whether or not there are any drug convictions prior to... Um, the purchase of a gun and setting aside the whole argument about the, the Bruin is the Supreme Court case, which I think essentially has said you can't, you can't, it, it makes potentially the things that Hunter Biden has been charged with potentially unconstitutional. Now it did that after the fact of his uh, alleged activity, but it could also present real uh, a legal challenge to the current existing charges. But again, if you know, you want to, you want to argue this is something that should be pursued. Great. Let's codify it. Let's make it a law. Let's, and the court, it won't happen, but create some, you know, difficult, <laughs> it, it just, it, you know, the Democrats will never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I know. But bring it back. I mean, this form, it's a form 4473. It was part of the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act of 1993, which was led by Joe Biden. <laughs> he was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So, you know, it's it's going to be very interesting to see because, you know, Republicans and right wings think that this part of the law is unconstitutional because it, you know, restricts gun ownership. So and had had Hunter Biden purchased this firearm at a gun show, wouldn't even be It'd here. be fine. Wouldn't be an issue. Wouldn't even be here. Because there are no forms. Right. Nope. Right. All right. We have a little bit more to get to. <laughs> My next favorite part of this show is the Pete Navarro hearing. Uh, and we're going to cover that in just a minute. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Uh, let's thank our Hall of Famers. I want to thank January 20, baby. Shares a birthday with me. My birthday is also Inauguration Day. A Dinosaur in Dental School. Insert witty name here, David in Brooklyn. Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. Lance Buckley, Greg Kreimer, Patty B. And please don't read this on the pod. We don't need a call out. Thanks for what you do. And I'm <laughs> never sure if I'm supposed to read that or not. Like, I like... I don't want to not get the joke. You know what I mean? So, and it's still anonymous, but there, thank you to our hall of famers. Um, truly like I, I'm so humbled by your support. Um, and you've been there since the beginning, you've been here, um, supporting independent media. So really appreciate you. All right, real quick, before we get to the Pete Navarro stuff, uh, the house GOP impeachment could be stymied by a Trump bar OLC memo. Uh, fun with OLC memos. There could be a whole podcast. Somebody should just have a podcast about OLC memos. Uh, in January of 2020, this is a year before he left office, the Donald Trump-led Justice Department formally declared that impeachment inquiries by the House are invalid unless the chamber takes formal votes to authorize them. I remember this specifically because I was on stage with Renato Mariotti, and we were talking about July 27th, um, of 2019, right when the uh, we had just gotten a headline that Adam Schiff had said they have a whistleblower about some malfeasance in Ukraine with the president. And we were talking about opening impeachment, right? And Nancy Pelosi opened it without a vote and all the Republicans like, it's not real impeachment. So we had opened a bottle of champagne saying it's only impeachment if it comes from the impeachment region of France. Otherwise, it's just sparkling treason. Uh, and I, I'll never forget. It's one of it's one of my favorite jokes that we did on the show. Uh, that was the old Mueller she wrote. But now he and then he wrote an OLC memo saying, no, 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 it's not impeachment unless you vote. It's not impeachment unless you vote on it. And so that actually still stands to this day. It's still on the books. It's binding on the current administration. It says we conclude that the House must expressly authorize a committee to conduct an impeachment investigation and to use compulsory process in that investigation before the committee may compel the production of documents or testimony. So when Jim Jordan comes crying and screaming for documents from the Department of Justice or from the executive branch and saying they won't hand them over, we know why. It's because of his own OLC memo. It goes on to say the House has not authorized such an investigation in connection with the impeachment-related subpoenas issued before October 31st, 2019, and the subpoenas, therefore, had no compulsory effect. And McCarthy, at the time, also called the impeachment inquiry illegitimate. Uh, he had pledged, as of a week ago, to hold a vote 
if he were to go down the same path with Biden before scrapping one on Tuesday when he just called it out. So fun, fun with hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the point is, yeah, these things live forever. So I, it, it, we'll, we'll see. I, I am very curious to see what the House will do because so much of this is just purely performance art that they don't, there's no expectation or desire to actually get into any sort of documents. I mean, would they love them? Of course. Are they going to be just as happy as to say, you know, well, we're being stonewalled and prevented from doing this? Yeah, they are. So it doesn't, at the end of the day, this isn't, it has never been about a legitimate investigation. This is all performance art. And so to the extent that, you know, this gives and binds the executive branch, it for Kevin McCarthy and the, the Freedom Caucus's purposes, <laughs> it just doesn't matter one way or the other. If I were Merrick Garland, I would take a copy of that every press conference. And when asked, why am I not providing documents in the impeachment inquiry, I would fold it into a paper plane and just throw it right at their face. <laughs> That's what I would do. <laughs> Yeah. So, so with that, moving from uh, talking about the the past uh, administration, let's talk a little bit about Peter Navarro. And I was thinking as we were getting ready for the uh, for the recording that I, I don't know what it is the the best person that Peter Navarro reminds me of, but there's this whole genre of we're heading into the holiday season, the the <laughs> Christmas specials of our youth, and I don't know, and the angry the angry scrunched up face, and I don't know if it is the heat miser, I don't know if it's the burger meister meister burger, I don't know who it is that most reminds me of Peter Navarro, but there's something about his just clinched up white haired angriness that the more Who's the his... evil Jack Frost guy, but not Jack Frost. Yeah, it was uh Fred, oh gosh, what was his name? Fred um Oh, I'm thinking something in the box. It was uh, anyway, but they're they're. Oh, all... you're thinking of the Jack in the Box on the Island of Misfit Toys and Rudolph yes. the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yes, yes, yes. But it wasn't Jack in the Box. <laughs> it wasn't. We'll find who the uh, whoever the other person was. But uh, in any event, Peter Navarro um, back in court because he wants a mistrial. Because when the jurors went out for some fresh air before they returned their guilty verdict, he claims they encountered protesters that Pete says could prejudice and did prejudice them. Now, they had went so far as that, uh, you know, the uh, Judge Mehta had the court security officer come in and provide testimony and statements. And they said, look, I escorted the jurors outside and um, they had I had the jurors remove their badges. There was one guy with the sign. No one approached any of the jurors. Nobody spoke to the jurors. Now, prosecutors are arguing, hey, regardless of any of this, Navarro could have raised this issue before the verdict, but he oh, didn't. Yeah. And then, you know, according to Scott McFarland, reporter, um, Navarro was visibly displeased, which, you know, again, for Pete isn't a big stretch. He's frequently visibly displeased. But during the brief airing, uh, reports that he was visibly displeased. And Judge Mehta hasn't made a ruling yet, at least not at the time of taping on Monday the 18th. And additionally said, look, I'm going to give both sides, um, Navarro as well as DOJ, going to give you some more time to file any more motions. So... We'll see. I mean, I think it's nonsense. You know, the fact is, as you pointed out earlier, that all these all these jurors came to deliberate over many, many days, and these protesters were also present there. So to argue that, oh, there is this one exposure during the time they went out for fresh air during the deliberations that somehow is going to, you know, impact them any more or less than the constant presence of protesters over the span of the entire trial. I doesn't think I, I don't think uh, it's a very compelling argument. But you know, Judge Meda is going to be he doesn't want to create grist for appeal. I'm sure Navarro is going to appeal like Bannon did anyway, but you know, he wants to create right. a very well documented record, give both sides the opportunity to present their arguments, to present um, you know, any sort of precedent one way or the other before he issues his ruling. So anticipate this is going to take a little more time. And again, the, the goal, it is just, it is the the way of the justice system. I know I'm certainly frustrated about the amount of time, like why Steve Bannon is still walks free, um, much like Roger Stone and some other folks that I just have huge questions about how they've escaped justice to this point. But justice, there's a reason everybody says it grinds slowly. And that's just the nature of the process. And frankly, it's, I think, you know, we want that slowness. It, it provides more protections uh, than it does um, sort of the satisfaction of, of quick results. But anyway. Has so there that's, ever been a time where you were at DOJ when you were like, wow, that went fast? No, no. No? Okay. I mean, sometimes like getting pleas, sometimes people I thought would go and, and want to get further through discovery or at least try and file some, you know, pretrial motions to see if they could gain any advantage. There are a couple of times where I can think of, you know, folks who were uh, committing espionage on behalf of the PRC that surprised me how fast they pled, but that's it. But people who 
people who chose to go to trial never never once did i say oh that was quick doesn't you'll never doesn't happen so (laughs) but you're it's constant like trudging and it can be frustrating um i worked for the government too there's just a there's a lot yeah Uh, fast fast ain't in the government lexicon i mean maybe you know some elite elements within dod can do fast and efficient but by and large it's not I spent three years trying to change a policy where we were spending taxpayer money to get money from DOD to VA. Uh, And I was like, why are we spending money to pay ourselves? And they were like, yeah, that seems odd. Why don't we just put it in the budgets in the first place? And I was like, yeah. And then that took three years. So it it just, it moves at a glacial pace. Um, And, and, you know, that's just how, that's how bureaucracies go. And yes, that's why we need whistleblowers, like really true, true whistleblowers to can point out fraud, waste and abuse. Um, Also, let's talk about Trump's motion uh, for stays in the E. Jean Carroll cases. They've both been denied. The appellate court, this is, I believe, the D.C. Circuit. um, uh, And they say they consolidated both of Trump's motions for stays. He wanted them both of the E. Jean Carroll cases. And the D.C. appellate court has denied both motions. They say, although we don't grant the stay, it would be in the interest of the parties for the court to resolve the issue of absolute presidential immunity, because that's what his appeal is based on, as presented in both appeals, and do this expeditiously. So they have approved an expedited schedule to make determinations on the merits of absolute presidential immunity. But there's no stay. No, you don't get to delay your trial until we figure this out. No, you don't get to stop not pay her for your other thing you lost until <laughs> until we figure this out. And Trump's brief, so the expedited schedule, Trump's brief is due September 28th. And E. Jean's reply is due 15 days after that. And Trump's response, if he wants to file one, he's got five more days. So everything should be into the appeals court uh, on this appeal for absolute presidential immunity uh, by around October 18th, if I'm if I'm doing the math right, thereabouts. Um, so we will keep an eye on that for you as well. I, this is a loser, I think, of an appeal. Uh, I don't think he has absolute presidential immunity. And all of that has kind of already been argued. I mean, he, those were his arguments in court in the first E. Jean uh, trial. So, and the second one's coming up, what, in January? Yeah. <laughs> so. And the thing is, we'll he's see. like kicking everything down the line, but everything, like there's so many things all coming together, like the end of this, you know, November, December of this year and beginning of next year. I mean, it, it at some point, you know, you can, it's like a Johnny Cash song, you know, you run on for a long time, but you know, sooner or later, God will cut you down. I mean, it's, it's coming. <laughs> I, you can't, <laughs> the, we are, we're we're not hide. there yet we're not there yet but I, I i foresee a time and i don't know that it's even in october but i think starting november december december january all After the, the holidays stuff, yeah yeah you're right and there don't be the natural government holiday season slow down but january february time frame there's going to come a point where it's like you know all the stuff coming together and increasingly you can't push out any further and it's all just going to come due all at once and Frankly, I can't wait. So, um, you know, we'll be here to No, talk me neither. It. I'm I'm very glad that I've been waiting for the justice train and I never got on the Trump train. It's a much cooler train. They have quiet cars, they have a better bar car. Uh it's just it's a better train to be on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, again, we'll all have front row seats to it and, you know, stay tuned. <laughs> And we'll report it all here. A great show. We made it almost in under an hour with all of the stuff going on. I appreciate um, our expediency there. Thanks so much, uh, Pete. And thanks to our patrons. Thanks to everybody who listens to this show. You can listen to it for free too. It's out there. Um, I, I don't know why I'm saying that to people who are already listening to it, uh, but maybe, you know, tell a friend about it that, you know, if you, and if you become a patron, you can uh, hear the bonus episode where Pete puts on a swearing jacket with some of my favorite commentary. <laughs> Absolutely. And delving into to new unrelated topics of interest to our uh, patrons. So thank all of you so much and uh, looking forward to chatting with you on the bonus episode here in a few days. Yep. We'll see you then. Uh, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. 
Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.